Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hey, it's Jason Watt here, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Um, I'm recording live from Ottawa here. I'm in Ottawa for um, HALU, which is the um, conference for advanced life underwriting. Um, this is a, it's an interesting conference. Um, oh, and sorry, CE credits. So this will be good for um, one life insurance credit in all jurisdictions. I believe we'll be able to get it approved for a half an ANS credit in Alberta. There's going to be some ANS content tomorrow. I didn't go to any ANS relevant sessions today. Um, and one financial planning credit on the FP Canada side. We get it approved for an MFDA credit and an IROC credit as well, an Advocus IS credit. So the usual batch of credits. So uh, the KLU, this is an organization um, about 35 years old now. A bunch of the founding members still are there. Um, there was a nice virtu- or a nice uh, uh, a tribute to uh, Jim Burton, who's one of the founding members today. Um, so it's always a bunch of folks who have sort of been around the insurance industry, um, leaders in the insurance industry. So it's an interesting um, mix here. The presentations tend to be focused on um, insurance and tax and estate planning. Um, and some practice management stuff. So I've been coming for about eight years now. Um, As far as a technical presentation or technical session in Canada, um, it's hard to do better. The IAFP conference, which I did record a podcast from um, last year, is similar, I would suggest, in terms of technical detail. You tend to see more kind of, um, I'm going to say, tax and estate lawyers and accountants presenting here um, and IAFP, I think, um, and it might just be a virtue of who is responsible for putting on IAFP, but IAFP tends to um, tends to uh, rely a little bit more on its members to do presentations. And there's some, I mean, fantastically talented members at IAFP. So um, our um, object for today um, is going to be my um, tin of black shoe polish. So my shoe polish, I, uh, yeah, on the road carry shoe polish. I like to polish my shoes. 
um, maybe not quite every day, but pretty close to it. I always like to have my shoes brown or black, um, properly polished. All right. So the um, sessions themselves, um, today was the first full day, and they always do the same thing at KLU, which I like. It's nice when it's all very predictable. Uh, they start on, it's always in Ottawa every year, second week in May, without fail. So I know the dates for next year and so forth. Um, so the Sunday, I'm recording this on Monday evening. The Sunday is always in the afternoon, some sort of like a practice management um, or, you know, what kind of training could you do out there session? So the session yesterday, um, in the afternoon on Sunday was EOS. It's the entrepreneur operating system. And I do see some advisors using EOS, the entrepreneur operating system. I did not attend it. Um, I'm reasonably familiar with EOS and I had, I just was way behind on work. So I did a bunch of work stuff yesterday afternoon. Um, and then they have always a couple of different receptions in on that Sunday evening and then a dinner. So the reception is nice. You know, it's uh, you're in Ottawa. I can see like Parliament Hill at my window here. Um, and the uh, speaker was uh, Evan Solomon. A lot of people know Evan Solomon. He was longtime host of Power and Politics. Um, and he was very good. Um He's an interesting and dynamic speaker, nothing to do with financial services, really, although he did work a couple things into his talk. You know, this is pretty typical with these keynotes or this sort of main stage presentations where, you know, the, the presenter has a talk and they give their talk and they sort of shoehorn in a couple like, you know, compliments towards insurance agents or compliments towards financial planners, which is entirely appropriate. It's the uh, sort of equivalent of the band giving a shout out to the hometown. Okay, so then this morning we kicked off um, not terribly early, but uh, breakfast at eight and a couple of administrative things. Um, and it's a well-organized conference. They've been doing it for a long time. There's a good staff contingent at KLU. So we, and this is where um, KLU does tend to have a lot of involvement from politicians. KLU does do some advocacy work, although has uh, taken careful steps not to be defined as a lobby group. So there used to be a little bit more involvement with politicians and the like, um, not so much the case anymore. So KLU really, um, they, they invite a bunch of folks from all parties, all stripes, so we kicked off the day um, with Terry Beach. Uh, Terry is the parliamentary secretary um, to Christopher Freeland, the uh, deputy uh, PM and finance minister. Um, he was quite good. He um, sort of gave a state of, you know, what the government has done. Um, I don't feel, feel like he was overly political, not too stumpy or anything like that. Um, talked a little bit about some tax reforms. So it was nice. Um, and he was a, a good speaker, funny and engaging. Uh, then we had our keynote speaker. This is a lady by the name of Latel Meram. I'm not, I was not familiar with Latel. Um, this was, you know, nice main stage sort of keynote. Again, a good way to start the session. Again, this is pretty typical for um, Kaylu. So she sort of gave this idea that we have to be aware of you know, where we're at with AI. Um, we have to think about what our customers actually want and how we can help our customers to um, find what they need. Um, she used a lot of references from technology firms, 
talked about unicorns in here and how they built their business, a unicorn being a business with, um, usually I hear it used uh, in reference to a billion dollars or more valuation. That might be a little bit of a data definition now. So anyways, um, it was a good presentation, uh, sort of thought provoking, but nothing in there that was, again, specifically relevant to financial advisors or the delivery of um, financial advice. Uh, so then, and this is where, for me anyways, um, KLU really becomes valuable. And by the way, I get to sit with lots of say, some former students and people who've done courses with us over the years and all that. So it's always nice I get to meet people at conferences like this that I otherwise wouldn't get to meet. So John might be listening to this if John out in the lower, or sorry, in the uh, interior of BC is listening. John, thanks very much. All right. So then we have concurrent workshops. So there were three concurrent workshops. I actually volunteer on the education committee for KLU. So I'd had a sneak preview of all of these presentations. Um, we had one that was, the title is Corporate Asset Transfer with Optimized Accessing of Assets. This was really an insurance leveraging seminar, sort of appropriate leveraging of insurance. Um, that's the session I attended. It was with uh, Mark Lawrence, who is a... Um, high net worth or a, a special case consultant, independent, uh, moderated by Patrick Uzan. I'm going to get Patrick on the podcast one day. Um, a lot of you will know Patrick. He used to be the uh, Canada Life um, sort of tax consultant in Calgary. Um, so great guy, super knowledgeable. I'll talk more about that session in a minute. Uh, we had a group retirement services session with uh, Harry Mathis. Harry actually... Um, did a session with us at Business Career College a couple of years ago. Um, he does group benefits, I think, exclusively. Um, here he was talking about GRS and really giving a good rundown on why group retirement services um, regulation matters. He talked about capital accumulation plans. I didn't attend the session, but I got to run through the PowerPoint deck in advance. Uh, this was moderated by Ian Burns. Ian is a group benefits advisor here in the Ottawa area and kind of the de facto host of group benefits people here. Um, in the third presentation, which I didn't uh, go to, I didn't actually get a good look at the deck for this one, but it was um, Living Benefits is Not That Scary uh, by Justine Zavitz and Jeff Wilson. Um, I don't know Jeff well. He's the treasurer for KLU, but I don't know him. Uh, Justine is a, an advisor out in uh, London, Ontario really good on the group benefit side. So the session I attended was the uh, corporate asset transfer with optimized accessing of assets. Uh, this was a very hardcore, nerdy insurance presentation with a ton of Excel charts and tables and so forth. And it really went through the appropriate leveraging of insurance. So first off, the idea here is that the idea here is that we have a business owner who has assets tied up in their corporation, um, they would be doing, and this is the, the sort of central pretense here, they would be doing fixed income investing, which is a terribly tax inefficient way to invest in their business. And we would take those dollars and we would instead go and buy a permanent insurance policy, typically a participating whole life policy with paid up additions. And then there was a sort of question as to, how to use that to extract value from the corporation. The traditional approach here with this kind of thing is to sort of immediately apply leverage 
uh, and to start borrowing against that policy and then start to take that money out of the corporation. And uh, Mark presented an alternative here, uh, which was that you're going to take the um, this, the corporate surplus cash. So find whatever corporate surplus cash you can take that out first and really leave the policy to grow some and then start to leverage against that policy. Um, it, he ran a whole bunch of numbers around it, uh, demonstrated that in most cases, that is the optimal solution. Um, and I get this, I understand. This is kind of where I ran into my beef with a lot of these high net worth insurance cases is that they rely on the use of leverage. So you have to be comfortable in this case, you know, the, the final loan amount in a lot of these cases was between like five and $10 million. Um, we've seen interest rates rise lately. Um, this would make me a little bit nervous. And the other thing with this is that there's no real regulation on the insurance side to give somebody who is only insurance licensed um, pause as to the extent to which they can employ regulation or sorry, employ leverage. Sorry. So I don't know. Um, yes, mathematically, these are great concepts. I would suggest that's true of pretty much any leverage. You borrow enough money, you um, are willing to take on some investment risk. And to be fair, in these cases, because of participating whole life with paid up additions, there's not a lot of investment risk. You can ensure the insurers will adjust the dividend scale, but you're not going to have you know a, a year where you're 20% down or, or something like that. It's not quite the same. So it, it's an interesting concept um, and I get it. And typically the, you know, this would be somebody with like $20 million of cash in the corporation and then they borrow or they use 5 million of it to buy an insurance policy and borrow against that. So that does mitigate the risk somewhat. Um, I have seen these cases done where you've got people who are, you know, absolutely at their maximum where they're using all of their cash flow to buy a policy against which they then leverage. That to me is not good. Um, the other thing that I see here is where people do this and then we run into residency questions. They end up, you know, moving to the United States or, moving to Europe or whatever the case is. And again, these concepts work well if you stay a resident of Canada. They start to fall apart a little bit after that. Um, we then had the AGM. There was an unusual bit of controversy here at the AGM um, where there was a motion to uh, allow associate members. I'm an associate member of KLU. I'm not an insurance producer. Um, a motion to allow an associate member to fill a position on the board um, and it's an interesting sort of debate uh, wherein you have people who say, look, it should just be advisors. And I kind of agree with that position. Um, I think that organizations that are for advisors should be run by advisors. I think you start to get into some potential conflicts of interest when you allow you know, insurance companies or somebody like me. You know, you wouldn't want me on the board. I would be representing the interest of business career college, regardless of what I say or whatever the case is, always, always, always in the back, there would be that concern. I volunteer, I do some committee work, but I don't have any executive authority or anything like that. So, um, so I think that it's, um, I don't know, it's a tough one. I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer there. Okay. Uh, the next session was with um, Darren Baxter, who is a tax lawyer out of um, Halifax and Kim Moody. Um, a bunch of people know Kim. Kim is a 
frequent presenter at lots of sort of uh, financial services events. Um, and they were talking about the new intergenerational transfer rules. This was a very good presentation. So the last presentation I consider very good as well. The, the Mark Lawrence sort of corporate asset transfer presentation was excellent. And this presentation was excellent as well. Uh, these are the things I come to Kalu for. These are things that you don't typically see other places. Um, so Kim and Darren worked through the new rules that are from budget 2023 uh, that should come into force January 1st of 2024 concerning how we move insurance, sorry, I apologize, how we move shares of a corporation from a, a parent to a child's hold co. And effectively, uh, I mean, Kim has a great flow chart. I'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, that shows all of this. But effectively, um, and Kim was very complimentary. It's kind of funny because, you know, Kim is often very critical of uh, the current government. Uh, but he said he thinks they mostly got this right. Um, and it's going to be the case now that we're going to have a way that uh, there's a legitimate transfer of ownership from parent to child where the child's hold co can buy out the parent's shares and the parent will be able to use lifetime capital gains exemption. So it it's good. It solves a longstanding problem. Um, there were some issues like it, it's never going to be where every possible case is going to work. Um, and Kim and Darren did a good job of pointing out some of the, the exceptions, some of the, the red flags here. But on the whole, um, I think that the problem is mostly solved. And, and it seems like a legitimate purchase of the um, parents' shares from the child's hold co and use of the lifetime capital gains exemption should now be viable. Um, we then had a really good session um, on uh, trends in underwriting. This was with Karen Cutler, who's in underwriting, head of underwriting with Manulife, and Dr. Bruce Emperingham, um, another regular at a lot of these sessions. Uh, Bruce is the medical director at Canada Life. Uh, so really in tune with uh, all that's happening uh, in the uh, underwriting space. And um, lots of interesting stuff here. Um, they said a, a few interesting comments that um, AI and sort of algorithmic underwriting is taking on a lot bigger role and they're seeing underwriting done a lot more quickly. Um, a lot of much, much larger value cases. So a lot more sort of 10, 20, $30 million cases, which would mostly be around tax planning, um, not so much a risk management question. Um, and then um, they also talked about, and this was the one that caught my attention, uh, mental health underwriting. On the mental health underwriting side, uh, Karen cited a statistic from uh, CLHIA, the Canadian Life and Health Insurance, association, excuse me, which is sort of the industry association for uh, mental health, or sorry, for uh, insurance companies. And uh, Karen uh, said that in, and I haven't seen this statistic myself, I'm, I went looking for it, I couldn't find it, but that the CLHI released a report in 2020 that said in 97% uh, of cases where the applicant um, indicated that there was potentially some concern around mental health that the policy had still been issued with a standard rating. So that does fly in the face a little bit. Um, and some of you might remember back at way back in season two, we had uh, 
Jessica on and Jessica had talked about some of the challenges around um, mental health and underwriting for insurance policies. It's a common thing I hear from advisors where they say, yeah, somebody disclosed that they went and got, you know, some counseling or some treatment. And then when we went to underwrite them, the insurer didn't like it. So I don't know, this might be, you know, the kind of thing that we hear sometimes on other health fronts where the, uh, the insurer um, sees something different in the attending physician statement than what the client tells the agent. I don't know, but it, it's something I'd like to see the data on. I'd like to see a little bit more information here. Um, it was interesting to hear Karen make this comment. Um, a couple of other things, uh, diabetes. So it's a very common sort of trope out there that if you have diabetes, you can't get insurance. Uh, this is absolutely not true. Um, uh, Bruce talked about many cases and, and standard underwriting procedures where people with diabetes can get insurance. He talked about lots of other cases too, uh, people with heart conditions, um, people with asthma and other lung conditions. He said, look, if you have uh, COPD and you're still smoking, well, forget it. But if you have uh, COPD and you stop smoking, you know, then it's possible that we can underwrite you. So that was pretty interesting. On the claims side, the one thing that came up with the claim side that I thought folks would find interesting, um, and I've talked about this before, but an insurer who sells somebody a life insurance policy where that person within the first two years after issue ends up dying by um, by maid, medical assistance and dying, uh, this is not going to have any problem. Now, assuming it is your underwriting properly, right? If you didn't disclose the medical condition that ultimately leads to uh, dying by maid, then yeah, the insurer is going to deny the claim. That's going to make sense. But assuming you did underwriting properly, and then you know something unexpected happens, maybe you have somebody who has a traumatic brain injury and ends up dying by maid within a couple of years, that claim will pay. That's not an issue. It's not considered to be uh, suicide in the conventional sense. Okay. Um, and that session is always good. I find that uh, I always learn a lot from that uh, underwriting session. Uh, we wrapped up the day with um, Melissa Lanceman. Uh, Melissa, really impressive lady. Uh, she's the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. She's, you know, this great success story, uh, first generation um, Canadian, first generation born here. Her parents were refugees from the USSR. Um, the uh, the talk was really good. I did find that she got into sort of like stumping territory. Her talk ran a little long. I would like to see a little more time for Q&A. Um, she had some interesting comments on housing affordability and, um, you know, talked about maybe freeing up some empty federal government space to serve as housing. But I, I do think that we have this kind of problem in Canada where most housing solutions have to happen at the municipal level, maybe some at the provincial level. The federal government, I, I think they can make the problem worse. I don't know if they can make the problem better. So. Anyways, um, and that's it. And then we um, have a reception at the uh, Chateau Laurier, which is right next door to Parliament. Um, there were a few members of Parliament there. Uh, Ex-Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was there. 
um, there's always a nice event where you kind of get to mingle with um, elected officials and so forth. I actually, I ended just chatting with, uh, you know, former students and some uh, actually former podcast guests and so forth. So um, good first day though. I really enjoy KLU. get to meet a lot of great people. Um, it is people who take their role in this industry seriously, people who want what's right for the business, uh, for their clients, and I find just a lot, of, a lot of good quality discussions here. So thanks to the uh, volunteers that uh, put Kalu on. Um, I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's another full day of sessions, and uh, we'll report in then. And I hope that uh, tomorrow's as good as today. It's Jason again, and uh, this is after the second full day at the Conference for Advanced Life Underwriting um, in Ottawa again. I can look out and see Ottawa out my window here. Um, so another fantastic day. Um, lots of good learning today. Um, lots of sort of current event stuff. And as with all the Kalu events, it's sort of a mix of uh, very technical, very, very technical, um, as well as uh, some political stuff, quite a bit of political stuff today. And then some um, sort of, uh, I'm going to say best practices or sort of client communication stuff. And um, really all good presentations today. Kayla does a very good job of putting on this conference. Okay. So we started off with um, pancakes and politics. This is a KLU tradition. I don't know how old it is, uh, certainly as long as I've been coming to these conferences. Um, and what happens here is they get an MP from each of the three major uh, parties in English-speaking Canada, although often it's a Quebec MP, but in this case, it's all from English-speaking Canada. Um, so it's very good. You, typically, these are people that sit on the finance committee. So the finance committee is usually um, multi, multi-party. Um, and you get to see the dynamic here. These are people who are you know, opposed to each other at question period. Um, but you can really see where at finance committee, uh, they are working together and you see this good dynamic amongst the group. I, I always enjoy this. So uh, we have Daniel Blakey, um, Adam Chambers and Francesco Sorbara today. Um, they all represented themselves well. They all spoke well for, um, for their parties and for their positions. Um, and you can see a lot of common ground here. And there was some, um, one of the things I find a little frustrating here, honestly, is, uh, they're, they took very little time to sort of stump. Like they gave they short presentations and there were a lot of questions. Um, I would like to see more technical questions, just me or whatever. Um, but uh, we we had a lot of, there's like a Q&A and you can pose questions. And a lot of the questions are, um, I don't know, almost like question period kind of questions or like the kind of thing you would see on, you know, power and politics or whatever. Um, and what I find sort of, frustrating there is that everybody just gives, you know, kind of stock, like this is our party position answers. It doesn't really give any insight into um, how legislation is made, which is maybe not what we want, but I know that's what I would like. All right. So um, then uh, we had uh, a few um, sort of administrative items here. Uh, we rolled into um, Peter Julian's address. Peter Julian is the, um, Deputy Critic for Finance for the NDP and their House Leader. Um, this was, a, again, a good session. Um, there was some uh, sort of presentation from the podium and then um, 
uh, some discussion about uh, a fair bit about pipelines and clean energy and that kind of thing. So, uh, but again, a lot of stuff that you you read in the Globe and Mail or you read in the you know National Post or whatever the case is. So, um, it, it was okay. Um, I I would prefer more um, insight again, the willingness to get uh, very technical. Um, this one was a shorter session, though, so not as much time for that. All right, we then rolled into the first, um, I'm going to say, sort of financial advisor-oriented presentation. Uh, this was Amy Florian. I was not familiar with Amy before this. She was excellent. Um, she talked about her topic is uh, client communications in times of crisis and loss. I think I'll try to get her on the podcast at some point. Um, she is a, a thaumatologist, if I remember right. I believe that's the right term, studier of death. Um, and she um, had really just such a broad vocabulary around grieving and loss. It was clear that she's thought about these concepts a lot and delved into it and gone through the academic literature and sort of all that kind of stuff. And then talked about um, quite a few really useful concepts here. Uh, first off, that Everybody um, can experience grief and that feeling of loss in all kinds of different situations. Um, you know, people, some people might not mind losing a pet and others are going to be devastated by it. Some people might not mind losing their job and others are going to be devastated by it. Some people might take it to just brush it off when you lose some value in your portfolio and others are going to be devastated by it. So she was good about trying to, I think, encourage some empathy that the financial advisor should recognize that the client um, really can um, have that feeling of loss or that grief in all kinds of things. And we shouldn't take it for granted that just because we think things are a certain way that that other person is going to think that way. So that was the start. Just the start here was kind of opening everybody's eyes to the extent to which we cannot take for granted that our experience is the same as that person's experience. Um, she had some really great tools for communicating with somebody, uh, which is the the heart of her presentation. Um, things like you know, little things you would never think about, like how to deal with a box of tissues, where she said, you know, somebody's crying, um, and we sort of you know force the box of tissues on them the the message there can be you know hey stop crying right which um she said we don't want to do that we don't want to tell that person to stop crying uh it it's hard to you know deal with those emotions it's brave to be able to bring those emotions to the front so we don't want to try and stop that person to cry or we don't want to send the message that we're stopping that person crying we want to encourage them to deal with those emotions so instead of you know offering the box of kleenex uh, maybe have your office set up in such a way that where your clients are sitting, there's a box of tissues accessible. And she even talked about you know, getting one of those leather cases for your tissue boxes or buying fancier tissue boxes at, or whatever the case is. So, um, you know, little things like that. And uh, I think that goes very much hand in hand. I've talked about this book before on the podcast. I think this goes very much hand in hand with the client psychology book by um, John Grable and, uh, oh, I forget John's co-author's name. But anyways, um, they have an excellent book that sort of talks about office layout and so forth. So quite good. And again, maybe a subtle thing, but those things when somebody is in that very difficult situation, and she made this point many times in her presentation, when somebody's in that very difficult situation, this is really when advisors earn their keep. And this is when 
the way the advisor interacts with that person is going to um, really cement that long-term relationship. If you don't deal well with that client who experiences loss, you're going to lose that client. If you deal well with that person, if they feel like you were sort of in their court and you were really able to help out, then you know that that goes a lot further. Um, she came up. She has some great questions here, and uh, the question I loved here. I, I put this on my Twitter feed too. The question she asked. By the way, I live tweeted the conference. You can go and look at the presentation um, feed or whatever the case is. Um, the question she had, and I think there's. She went through a whole bunch of different versions of this, but it's always some version of um, what do you wish that other people knew about what you're going through right now? And this is, I think, a much better way than, and she talked, she, again, she talked about saying, you know, I'm sorry. And the problem with I'm sorry is it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't do anything. Yes, it's a nice sentiment to express. And I think we want to say, I'm sorry, but it doesn't get us anywhere and move the conversation along and she said you know think about questions like this what do you wish other people knew about what you're going through right now and and that ties into that idea that everybody's experience with this is going to be different and she told some you know some sort of horror stories here you know the and i've heard this kind of thing before too somebody dies or sorry somebody has a a, a family member die a sibling or a child, for example, and then you know the the other person says, "Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I my cat died last week." And while the person whose cat died, it might have been traumatic for them. The person who just lost a family member, um, a, a sibling, or a, a parent, or a child, that person is going to think that comment is very insensitive, regardless of how nicely it, it's intended. So. Uh, we can't say, I know exactly how you feel. It, that's not possible. Um, and you think about the complex relationships we have with other people. If I say, when somebody's experienced a loss, oh, I had that same loss, I know exactly how you feel. It, no, that's not true. I only know how I felt in that moment. And even then, beyond that, um, and she didn't talk about this. This is, um, I can't remember where this research comes from, but there's basically pain oh this is Kahneman sorry this is Dan Kahneman pain is something that you know we we experience it acutely in the moment and then as we get further away from it it becomes dimmer and dimmer so okay um so really fantastic presentation like I said I'm going to try and get her on the podcast I think she'd be a great guest I think she, there's lots of um really solid stuff there and lots that overlaps with a lot of what I'm reading today on the sort of client psychology behavioral um, psychology side Okay. Um, the other thing she talked about was, and I talked about this topic before too, um, the idea that we want to normalize that relationship with the counselor, therapist, whatever the mental health team is. Um, and I, I had this conversation with somebody at my table afterwards. Um, so, Bob, sorry if you're listening. Um, I'm going to use this as a uh, uh, your question as a source of disagreement here, um, but. I really think we can normalize this. We can remove the stigma by early in the financial planning engagement. When we go through our information gathering, one of the questions we ask you right alongside, who's your tax accountant? Who's your lawyer? Who's your banker? Who's your mortgage broker? Who's your mental health professional? You maybe ask, do you have a relationship with a mental health professional? And I think this goes a long way to normalizing it. I think that if you're going to have 
empathetic and aware conversations with your clients about their uh, their situations, then we have to bring that in early. I think anything we do that delays that until later in the relationship, well, now it suddenly feels like the uh, mental health professional is like an afterthought or you know somebody that's only needed because your situation is so bad or because you're so messed up or something like that. We don't want to have that message and we want really the like the tax accountant and the mental health professional to just be part of the team. Now, I'm happy to hear a disagreement about that. I, I'd be curious to know why that doesn't work or whatever the case is. All right. Um, we then rolled into the uh, concurrent workshops. Um, so there were three workshops that I wanted to go to all of them, but I only could go to one. The recordings will be available later on, so I'll be able to watch those. So um, Amy, that I just talked about, had a part two, an in-depth version of her presentation. I talked to some people who attended it, um, and it apparently was quite good. She gave more tools. Um, apparently, there was a little bit of crying in that session, which is no surprise. I, you know, Even as she was going through her presentation, um, I was emotional. So I'm not surprised that in a smaller group with a more intimate setting that there was some, um, some emotions coming to the fore. Okay. Um, the other session that I didn't go to was unleashing the potential of wage loss replacement plans. Um, and this is really, um, it's a it's a great living benefits topic. Um, I will maybe try to get uh, Chris Ireland, I know Chris a little bit, onto the presentation at some, or onto the seminar, sorry, onto the webinar, this thing, this podcast at some point, and we can go through that. All right. Um, and then the one I did go to, um, and uh, this is, the, I don't know, it's, uh, so this was uh, Himal Balsara, uh, Rachel Blumenfeld. Um, some of you will know Rachel. She was a past chair of STEP, the Society of Trust and State Practitioners, um, and Michael Selchin. This was Michael's first time at uh, Kalo. I've seen Himal before. He's always amazing. And uh, Michael Selchin, this is a, a bunch of really hardcore, like insurance tax nerds, and Florence Marino, um, whom we found out today is retiring at the end of June from her job at Manulife. Although I had lunch with Florence um, afterwards, which was a real treat, by the way. This is a reason to come to Caleb, to have lunch with people like Florence Marino. For those who don't know, she is the primary editor um, and principal author of Canadian Taxation of Life Insurance. And she has been since its inception. Uh, this is, for those that know, it's a big, thick book that has the the complete everything you could ever want to know about taxation of life insurance. Anyways, um, Florence moderated it, and she said she's going to continue to contribute to that book afterwards and so forth. So if you get the chance to talk to Florence, wish her a, a happy retirement. This session was uh, post-mortem planning. Uh, where are we now? And it sort of dealt with um, what's happening with uh, pipeline strategies. So the, when we talk about post-mortem planning, usually in tax terms, this means a pipeline. Um, I'm actually uh, putting together a video for this. I'll put a link in the show notes to this video, um, wherein I'll explain sort of the very, very basics of this. Um, it was really, um, I'm going to say Himal, who led a lot of this conversation, uh, where uh, the the points that he went through was sort of the the optimal structures, like we can go from less efficient to more efficient. The point here is don't assume that um, there's one way to do the pipeline. He went through five or six different structures. 
And each of them had its own nuances and each of them would you know, work in some cases and not work in others. If you have insurance or if there's a lost carryback to use, or if there are um, refundable dividend tax on hand amounts to extract, all of these things um, really have to be accounted for. You have to make sure that you sort of math it out properly. The, the thing that um, Rachel and Michael both emphasized, and this was really valuable, and I think this is where we get past just the sort of nuts and bolts, the, the math of the pipeline, is that you have to have your will set up properly. The will can't be too constrictive. Uh, the insurance has to be set up properly. It also can't be too constrictive. The insurance will be owned in the corporation here. Um, and your family has to be on board. Um, we heard a story, a couple stories actually from Rachel and Michael about cases where uh, there was a, a pipeline strategy available, but families um, were not cooperative with the executor. And really to make this work right, generally, um, at least to use capital loss carryback, we have to have the capital gain in the first year after death and the, or sorry, the capital loss in the first year after death. And when, when the family's fighting with the executor, that just can't happen. So you have to have you know, the basics in place, insurance, will, family meeting. And then we can start to get into this fancier stuff. But without those basics in place, this pipeline planning stuff is is off the table. And we saw in the presentation that this results in, for significant enough values, this results in hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax savings. So well worth doing. I had a really good conversation after the session as well with some other attendees about balancing fees versus the outcomes. And we, I heard a story there about um, an accountant who um, hesitated to do this work for a client because the fees, it was a large case, it was about a $50 million case. That, that is the total value of the, the operations was about $50 million. And the accountant said, it's going to be $300,000 of fees. Are you sure we want to do this? And you know the advisor made the point that, yes, if we do this, it's going to result in $10 million of tax savings. So yes, when you have $10 million of tax savings on the table, you definitely want to do, you know, spend $300,000. It makes a lot of sense. So, uh, but it's always a good trade-off. You know, if you're thinking about like a $600,000 uh, corporation, then you're probably not going to jump through these hoops. All right. So then, yes, as I said, I got to have lunch with Florence Marino. I, I wanted to do a selfie with her, but the opportunity, I should have, honestly, I don't know what happened. All right. So then um, tax and estate planning. Uh, this was, so... There's sort of a couple different versions of this in alternating years at KLU. There is the Department of Finance and CRA Roundtable. Um, and this is where finance and CRA send sort of two or three people each. And they will come and work through with um, Kevin Wark. And uh, usually it's um, Angela. Oh, I can't remember Angela's last name. Sorry, Angela. Um, but Kevin Wark and Pamela Cross today were doing this job where... Uh, they'll come in and sort of work through fairly complex tax issues, but it's only an alternating year. So in this year, we didn't have CRA and finance here. We had Kevin Work and Pamela Cross going through a sort of item by item uh, listing of um, key tax and estate planning stuff. It was really kind of a state of the union. Um, there were a few things here that I um, grabbed onto. 
And the one I wanted to mention specifically here um, was, oh, around, uh, sorry, insurance um, rebating. So um, I don't think I knew this, but uh, insurance rebating, when we have um, a, a rebating transaction done, if it's even allowed, I'll leave that up to you. That's a different question. Um, but if we have insurance rebating, that amount is actually taxable to the client. It can be deducted by the insurance agent who rebates that commission, but it's taxable to the client. I would caution that there are many provinces where insurance rebating is not allowed and there are lots of rules around it. So I'm not suggesting you should be doing it, not at all. But if you are, just caution that that's taxable. Um, there was a lot of other uh, sort of pretty in-depth discussion of various tax items. Uh, we talked a fair bit about notifiable transactions. Um, and I don't know exactly where this is going to land. We're still in some gray area around this. Uh, but this is a, a sort of new provision, new-ish provision in the Income Tax Act. Uh, CRA's kind of gone back to the drawing board on it. Uh, Department of Finance had to go back to the drawing board a little bit. But we're going to land in a place where uh, transactions that are done, where they're sort of unusual transactions, and there are fees paid to an advisor or consultant who helps out with it, and there's some tax saved as a result, we're going to land in a place where there's going to be additional reporting to CRA around those notifiable transactions. And the other thing that um, I just noted here was um, for U.S. persons, uh, when we're talking about uh, U.S. estate tax, we often talk about the unified credit. The unified credit is unchanged for 2023 at $12.92 million. Um, if we don't get legislative change out of the United States in the next three years, then in 2026, that unified credit will drop about in half to about $6.5 million. Um, this is actually fairly significant. We've kind of been used, I think, this kind of 10 to $12 million unified credit. This has meant most Canadians aren't concerned about U.S. estate tax. But if that amount cuts in half, if we end up at six or six and a half million dollars, uh, there's going to be a lot more Canadians with potential U.S. estate tax exposure. That would happen if you have more than $60,000 of U.S. assets, which would include, for example, $60,000 of shares of Apple held in a Canadian brokerage account, um, although not if they're held through a Canadian mutual fund or Canadian ETF. Um, so you'd have that $60,000 threshold, US, 60,000 US, as well as six and a half ish million dollars. Uh, that could include the value of your private corporation, that include your farm, that could include a life insurance policy paid as a result of your death. There's a fairly complicated set of rules around that. So you might want to pay attention for your US persons as to as people with US connections, so property in the US or the $60,000 um, of shares or whatever the case is, that, that they might end up um, having some US estate tax exposure. Uh, and we're really kind of reliant on the Americans to pass and or change legislation around this. All right. Um, the I would point out a couple of, um, I don't know, things that kind of disappointed me here a little bit. Um, the employee ownership trust rules. So budget 2023 includes the employee ownership trust provisions. This is supposed to make it easier for business owners to sell their business to their employees. Um, I've talked to a few folks about this. In fact, I'm going to have John Shell on the podcast at some point to talk about this. 
um, I believe we're going to um, see nothing useful come out of this. I don't I don't see any real benefit to the measures as proposed in the Income Tax Act. Uh, they're super niche. I, I could explain them here, but I don't think it'd do any good. Um, they're really, really niche. And there's some so much restrictions that come with them that they don't even get any additional benefit. I would love to see KLU lobby to get a better provision here. I think KLU has the tools to do this, um, but I don't think there's any will for it. I, I asked the question in the um, Q and A afterwards, and I think KLU is um, and and it, it, fine. Like the intergenerational succession, that's a big issue too, and that's something KLU has a lot of expertise in. So I get that. Um, all right. We also, um, there was no discussion and I was hoping there would be about health spending accounts. Um, if I can pin down uh, Kevin Work tomorrow, I'm going to ask him about health spending accounts. It's something that uh, came out of the last year's KLU meeting is this um, question about health spending accounts for owner operators uh, where there are no employees in an incorporated business. And there's kind of a confusing set of positions from CRA on this. So I'll try and get something around that. All right. And then our um, last um, set of workshops. So once again, um, I had a couple choices here. Um, one was the, um, they call it Masterclass 2.0. It was sort of like presentation skills. Um, I didn't go to that one. I probably would have learned some great stuff there. Um, you might be criticizing my presentation skills as we're speaking and saying, Jason, I wish you would have gone. But this is what you get. Um, the other one that I didn't go to um, was uh, around open finance. Um, I actually had dinner with this lady last night with Michelle Bayo, um, the open finance speaker. Um, she was excellent. She is sort of a fintech entrepreneur uh, in the payments space. And uh, she talked about um, the lack of sort of an open data infrastructure, just for what it's worth. Open banking, open finance would mean that um, I have ownership over my data. And she's has, she has a good analogy for this. A lot of people remember this. There was a time like 15 years ago when if I left Hellas and went to Rogers, I had to dump my old phone number and get a new phone number. And maybe eight or nine years ago, maybe longer ago than that. But anyways, that changed where I essentially carried that phone number with me no matter what the provider was. Well, that's kind of what open banking is where you take your your banking information, it just moves with you no matter what institution you're using. It, it is really the way in Europe. Um, the Americans have some experiments with it. Canada is um, a notable laggard. Jason Pereira um, has, I should uh, link to his podcast here. He's got a five-part series on open banking on his podcast. So thanks, Jason, for putting that together. And then uh, the session I did go to uh, was with um, Gavin Mosley. And uh, Gavin helped me out with a CE session a couple of years ago. Uh, Gavin is a very active commentator um, on the CGIB uh, forums. Um, CGIB, you'll know that's where Dave Patriarch, with whom I host the Navigator podcast, is. And then um, also with, uh, I'd never met Jane before, Jane uh, Bottenheimer and Ed Hofstetter. Um, and they talked about when to use a TP. And by the way, Gavin, thanks so much. Uh, Gavin uh, might be listening to this and I uh, got to see him quite a bit over the last three days. It was a real treat or last two days, I guess. Real treat to get to meet him. Just a top-notch guy. 
um, super sort of contributor to contributor to our industry. Um, the kind of person that would be a great mentor is a great mentor. Um, and if you were coming into the benefit space and you want to learn how it works, he would be one of the maybe half dozen people or so that, that would be on the must talk to list. So, uh, kudos to Gavin. Thanks so much. Um, they talked about when to involve a third party administrator. A lot of this was not just when to involve, but sort of how to involve, what questions to ask. There was a lot of really good stuff here. And I should comment that uh, Mike McClenahan, who was on the podcast previously talking about third-party administrators, he's the um, head of the uh, Third-Party Administrator Association, Association of Canada. We had him back on back in uh, season four. Um, he was in the room as well, and he had so much great input. So uh, some of the things that came up here were examples of what a third-party administrator can do that others can't. And just as an example... We talked about a critical illness insurance policy in a group setting where um, we have some inconsistencies with definitions from carrier to carrier. So if you have your plan with one carrier and you shop the plan and you know every three to five years kind of thing, and then you move to a new carrier, you might find the definitions don't carry over. And using a TPA, you could actually carve out and just have your CI chunk over with that TPA and not have to move that coverage over. Um, tons of other stuff here. We talked about ownership. So who owns the relationship? Um, what's the TPA like in terms of competing with you? Are they, you know, on one hand offering a service to a broker and another hand competing with the broker? Um, how are they going to treat it when the broker um uh, loses that business or when the broker wants to move that business around. Um, what about technology? Are you using the TPA's technology or are you using an insurer's technology that the TPA gives you a portal to? What exactly is happening there? So um, lots of good stuff around sort of how to use um, third-party administrators and the role that they fill. All right. Um, the last session we had was... Um, the, was another politics session, um, although no politicians actually hit this one. Um, this was uh, sort of journalists and commentators, two journalists and a commentator. So uh, Joël Denis Bellavance, who writes for um, La Presse, uh, Nick Nanos, you might, you'll know Nick. Nick is a, a pollster. So you hear Nanos polling or Nanos consulting. That's Nick. And he has tons of data. He spends all of his time sort of asking Canadians you know, interesting questions. You see all these surveys, you know, who would you vote for today? Which leader do you have the most confidence in? That, that That's a, a lot of that is Nick. So, um, and Althea Raj, um, Althea writes for uh, Torstar. And this was moderated by Guy Legault. It was nice to see Guy. He is the um, president of, um, sorry, executive director, president. I apologize, Guy, sorry. CEO. Anyways, he runs the show. He's the sort of full-time staff member who keeps everything um, running and just a super guy, well-respected. Um, so the three of them um, really just bounced around a bunch of ideas. It kind of, it was a pretty, um, pretty loose discussion, but they bounced around ideas about, you know, when we might have an election and what's going to happen with the various provincial elections and all that goes along with that. So um, quite good. 
and uh, just but really kind of light and interesting um not really something that like i I guess i don't know if i learned a lot from it um it was like watching three very smart people talk politics uh three very smart very well-informed people talk politics i guess four i should he is in that group too for sure so four very smart very well-informed people talk politics um and that's um it's good it's just um Again, I don't know there's much I can impart. All right, so that is uh, day two. Um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna get a day three update. Day three is sort of a mixed bag of stuff and I'm headed right to the airport right afterwards. So I'm gonna do the conclusion now. If I end up with some day three updates, great. Um, So our number is six. Our number is six in a field. Join me again in two weeks. Um, I sort of sandwiched this episode in um, in two weeks' time. I'm going to have um, uh, Jordy Ayton from Estate Planner on the podcast, and we're going to be talking about the Estate Planner. It's a super cool visualization in estate planning tool. All right. Thanks so much. Enjoy your continued studies. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, So I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, Now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. 
And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about.